have the sermon text in the insert in your bulletin this morning, verses 9 through 11. They're printed here, but we're going to save them for next week because that paragraph is a hinge paragraph between this first section of 1 Corinthians 6, Christians suing each other, and the second section, Christians going to prostitutes. Listen to this stunning rebuke given to the ancient Christians in Roman Corinth by the very distressed Apostle Paul. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Most of us today probably don't know that. How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. So far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray together, shall we? Oh, Lord, give us ears to hear. We pray. There is a soberness about this text. And yet, oh, Lord, it is so laced with and so rooted and grounded in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we need the Spirit to give us great discernment and a willingness to hear and to be instructed. And so we ask for that even now, confident that you hear us and will give what we ask. But we ask it even in Jesus' name. Amen. Martin Luther, the great church reformer of the 16th century, once said this. I actually wore my Luther socks this morning for this occasion. They say, here I stand, I can do no other. <clears throat> it was given to me by some creative folks in the congregation. I, I think it was well-intentioned, but <laughs> in any case, Luther once said this. He said, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. And it lays hold of me. I confess that I struggle to know how to make this bracing and sobering text speak to you, to animate its feet so that it runs after you, to guide its hands, to lay hold of you right where you are, wherever you are, in your understanding of the radical thing that it's about to be a Christian a citizen in the radical kingdom of God that has broken in on our dark world, whether you are a believer or not. 
After I finished my part of the conversation on politics Friday night, I had a sinking feeling that I had spoken too long and too abstractly about the church and the kingdom of God when everybody now is grappling with the very practical political questions of these months. Unfortunately, that sinking feeling went all the way to the basement floor when I got home after the meeting and found my wife waiting to critique me. So many apologies to you who were there, but this is what I was trying to stress, and it has captured me for some time now, from the beginning of this series on 1 Corinthians, but also all the way back several years ago to our series on Ephesians. And it seems to me so utterly crucial when it comes to questions of politics, when it comes to questions of living in our secular age. When it comes to technology, when it comes to living with, and now we can see this stuff wherever we go on our phones, living with the pervasive brokenness of the world and the brokenness of our own fragile selves. The thing that's captured me is this, the emphasis that the Word of God puts on those things that make us different from non-Christians around us, because through faith in Jesus Christ, we have become citizens of the kingdom of God. And those things that make us the same as non-Christians around us, because we all are made in the image of God. I'm so glad our teens on Sunday nights now are going to be exploring that they, just like us, are called by God to be in the world but not of the world. The distinction Jesus himself draws in his high priestly prayer in John 17. It's the very same theme. But what does that look like in school? In the way you think about yourself in relationship to your friends? In the way you study? In the way you think about what your music means to you and should mean? Friends, Christians are different. They are different. They are different. That is woven into the very fabric of Holy Scripture. And if believers are different, then they are to think and act differently from those around them. You already know that, and thanks be to God, you who confess Christ here are already working on it. But here comes a great paradox. The more Christians do believe and act on the differences, the differences that God himself has established between them and those around them, the more Christians do believe and act on those differences, something happens. The more similarities they discover they have with unbelievers the more humble they grow and the more winsome they become toward those outside the church. That actually happens the more you take the differences seriously. It's a wonderful paradox. So I ask you this, how is it possible after almost 2,000 years of church history 
of the bitterest conflicts and fights and divisions and lawsuits and counter lawsuits among Christians. How is it possible to take seriously the high standards for the church laid out here in the first part of 1 Corinthians 6 without becoming cynical and writing off the Apostle Paul as a naive idealist, concluding that, well, the life of God's people just wound up being far more complicated than Paul ever anticipated. He seems to be asking impossible things of Christians. Now, Paul was something of an idealist in the good sense of the term, but he was not naive. And we most certainly do have to rein in our 21st century creeping cynicism when we come to Paul's teaching here. The truth seems to be this, that Paul is not viewing the church of Jesus Christ in Corinth simply from the standpoint of their human potential, but rather he is seeing it as God the Father has purposed it to be from eternity. As God the Son, by virtue of his finished work on the cross in history, has promised it could be. And as God the Holy Spirit, who in a strange and mysterious way brings Christ's goodness from heaven to the church on earth, And actually empowers it to be in the here and now. The here and now of any age and any place where God's people are. We said last week that this text teaches that love in the church is to be radical in the way we live it out as Christians. Because the kingdom itself, the kingdom of God is radical. If we, and Paul's speaking to these Christians in Corinth, we learned from the earlier part of the letter that most of the believers there were not from the upper classes, but rather from the lower classes. And yet, what does he say? We shall judge the world. If we, peon Christians, are going to sit as judges over the world and stand over angels, as Paul says here, to judge them. That's a pretty wild and radical kind of kingdom. What we find from the Apostle Paul here is just a variation on Jesus' insistence that the love expressed by the citizens of the kingdom of God is to have a radical as well as what we might call a natural dimension to it. In the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, Jesus pushed and he said, if you love those who love you, of course what he was implying is if you love those who love you and you stop there with that natural kind of love, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? Jesus said, Even those self-centered tax frauds in the pockets of the Romans, even they know how to love people who love them back. 
But how are you going to feel? And what are you going to do when you believe you have been cheated financially by a brother or sister in Christ and you believe that you can prove it? When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? That is, does he dare to go into the Roman civil courts in Corinth rather than to the church for it to be resolved? Well, it raises a good question, does it not? Is it wrong to seek justice from the civil authorities that God himself has established for that? We just talked about that from Romans 13 the other night. Well, here's the problem. Doing that, Paul implies, makes you look like everybody else when in fact you really are not. In the first part of the letter, Paul has this remarkable insistence that Christians are different. They are different because the eternal and omnipotent Son of God, Jesus Christ, is in them. And that reality, that fact, that objective truth is supposed to get out into the open. It's supposed to be let loose in our living. That is in the subjective way that Christians live with each other. They are supposed to live higher in their relationships, in their families, in their marriages, with their neighbors, in their business dealings with one another, higher than non-Christians. Now be careful, it's not for any intrinsic superiority that they carry in themselves. Gee whiz, no, not at all. But only because Jesus Christ has laid down his life for them, has worked faith in their hearts, and now mysteriously somehow takes up residence within them. And he's working on them, growing them, and changing them. That's how Paul spoke into the first problem in Corinth that he tackled when there was all this jealousy and quarreling at work among them. And if we had time, we could go back and look at all that, the remarkable things that Paul says in those first three chapters. In verse 15 of chapter 2, he said this, the spiritual person, and for Paul that means the person who has the Holy Spirit, the spiritual person judges all things. He stands over all things, all philosophies, all religions, all claims to truth, He judges all things, but is himself or herself to be judged by no one. Why? He goes on at the end of that chapter to say, because we have the mind of Christ. By which he means, we have been given the mind of Christ. And so his whole appeal here is, is this, because that's who you are, and because that's what you've been given, you better find the mind of Christ in this situation. But it's a radical claim. It means, friends, that nobody anywhere has a fuller picture than you do, as a Christian, of what is true, of what is good, of what is beautiful, of what is real, and what is right, and what is just. 
because God has revealed that to believers via his word and his Holy Spirit sent upon the church at Pentecost. Right, right. The thoughtful unbeliever says with a smirk, well, if that's true, then tell me why does Joe the olive merchant despise Alexander the tinsmith so much that he has decided to sue him in civil court in downtown Corinth? Tell me that. And the unbeliever would be right. How can that not drag in the mud the name of the one whom Christians worship? It does. And that's what Paul is implying. He goes so far as to say in verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. In other words, you lost even before you filed the legal papers, Paul is saying. There you are at home scheming with your lawyer how you're going to beat this family in the next pew in court. But you've already lost just by going to court. You've lost. The church has lost. And the honor of Jesus Christ has lost because such behavior castrates the church of Christ. It pushes it toward impotence as if the Spirit of God had never set foot in it at all. The grace and love and humility and justice that animated and filled the earthly life of Jesus, those glorious things triumph over nothing if you behave like this. Yes, Paul says, better by far to find a believer, maybe two, who can help you sort out your conflict. That is clearly here. Paul's preferred course of action. That's clear in verse 1. And in verse 5, where Paul says, is it really possible that there's nobody in the congregation they're wise enough to settle a dispute between these warring brothers? Come on, there's got to be somebody who can do that, Paul pleads. But even if you can't find another believer to help you, look at verse 7, then why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded instead of dishonoring the name of the Lord who bought you? He's saying, by giving non-Christians grounds to say and to believe, Christians... Christ followers, they're just like everybody else, sometimes worse. Now, we said last week that care needs to be taken here. Is it possible that maybe Paul is exaggerating when he says it would be better to be defrauded? Remember, in another place he says, I wish everybody was single as I am. That's hyperbole. It's possible that Paul is exaggerating here, but he seems to be so passionate about this. Maybe he knows that there's an attitude problem as well with these lawsuit-happy brothers in Christ who are at odds in Corinth. We don't know the circumstances of the case. Maybe it isn't even that much money, and that's why Paul goes so far as to say, look, it would be better even to be defrauded, or maybe it was a small piece of property. 
But what if a brother in Christ, business partner of yours, was acting unjustly and there was far more at stake? Your livelihood, your children's inheritance, and a fair amount of money, let's say, that you had hoped to start a foundation with to help others. Can Paul's counsel here be reduced to a law, a strict rule in the church of Jesus Christ, never, ever take another Christian to court. What about the situation I mentioned last week? When a hijacked board of a Christian organization tried to silence its director by refusing any severance pay unless that director agreed to sign a non-disclosure statement after she was fired by the board's underhanded tactics and manipulation. Can we say clearly and categorically that a lawsuit is wrong in that situation too? Many evangelical congregations have sued in civil court for their property when they tried to leave their denomination and were told, sure, you can leave, but not with your church property. What about that? I submit to you that the rule of thumb should be that what Paul is teaching here is that from the start, in any situation, the prejudice should always be against Christians going into the civil courts to settle their disputes. And the prejudice should be toward trying to get other believers to mediate or to adjudicate the conflict. But there might be situations in which to do nothing after intervention by other Christians has failed. To do nothing would be such a gross miscarriage of justice that going to the civil magistrate, going with humility rather than with bombast and rather than going with an anything-goes kind of lawyer might in fact be justifiable. But it would need to be weighed and prayed very, very carefully with much counsel from other Christians. Now, rather than get caught up in a legalistic tangle about which situation might be allowable and which not, we need to focus here on the core thing, which is Paul's vision for the church that is behind his reprimand. It's a phenomenal vision for what the church ought to be. The Apostle Paul has this high, high view of the reality and the power of the kingdom of God. And he has an enormously high view of the church, of the Corinthian church, as weak and as immature as he finds it. But Paul is like God in this. He hangs in there with the church. He pleads with it. He scolds it. He admonishes it. He prays for it. He encourages it. He is hopeful for it even as he calls it upward toward what God wants for it. All because his soul has been captured by what the finished work of Christ has made it possible for the church to become. A lamppost that points outsiders to God and his kingdom of light by 
loving each other well. A community of people whose relationships of radical love become evidence that God has acted in the world through his Son and has actually made it possible for human relationships at least to begin to be healed and restored. I think this is true. You might think it a little bit heretical as an American, but I think it's true that the most important question for our land right now is not who will become President of the United States, but rather, why as a society do we keep suppressing our alienation from God? Why do we keep suppressing our craving for a security and a peace and a prosperity and a reign of justice that will never diminish and never be taken away? That is the core question that God poses to those around us. And he asks it in the message of the gospel. Repent. That's all bound up in that question. Why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. That's how Matthew, I think it is, summarizes the teaching of Jesus when it begins. That's how God asks it in the message of the gospel we proclaim. But he commends the truth of the gospel of the kingdom through the reality the demonstration of the power of the kingdom of God at work in the church. And friends, those around us, whether they know it or not, are in fact looking for that which cannot be taken away. As you too once put it, I've been to the highest mountain, I've been here, I've been everywhere, and I still haven't found what I'm looking for. The radical way that we live with each other and endure each other for the sake of Christ's name, that is supposed to be visible to those around us so that they are drawn toward us to the end that they might come in due time to see and to submit to the divine order in the world and to discover by God's revelation what is real, good, and eternal. Friends, the harder things get around us, the more brightly our lamppost needs to shine. The believers in Corinth were acting just like everybody around them. That's the great danger for the church in every age. And when believers lapse into that pattern, it spells the unplugging of the power of the gospel in the church, which God himself has purposed to use to bring back to himself those lost sons and daughters of his still wandering in the dark and in desperate need of a light that will show the way home. 
Oz Guinness, the old friend of Labrie Fellowship, <clears throat> recently lectured at the Francis Schaeffer Institute Conference at Covenant Seminary. He has a new book out about Christians <clears throat> living in the West in this 21st century. Many of you know it. He titled it Impossible People. Christian Courage and the Soul of Civilization is the subtitle. Now, the title is interesting. I wondered why he called it Impossible People, and so I searched and found it in the introduction. He explains the title. An Italian reformist monk named Peter Damien, born just after 1000 AD, was described by some of his contemporaries as that impossible man because it was a time of great moral laxness and corruption in the church. And Peter Damien stood against it in the name of Jesus. Oz writes, he called for reform against the most prominent evils. He attacked the widespread, the widespread practice of selling church positions for money and the equally widespread acceptance of homosexuality, pedophilia, and older men immorally engaged with boys, especially among the clergy. Now, apparently, Damien was criticized for being so negative, but Oz argues that what drove him was his faithfulness to Jesus and the charge that Jesus gave to his church to care for the Lord's sheep. Oz writes, Peter Damien's commitment to Jesus alone was so fierce that he won the reputation for being unmanipulable, unbribable, undeterrable, and unclubbable. Now, clubbable means allowing yourself to be coerced into conformity through not force, but through the easygoing, backslapping appeal of those around you who oppose you, but then come to you and say, hey, come on, can't you be a little nicer to us? Peter Damien spoke, wrote, and acted with an eye to the audience of one, God. Oz writes, his faith had a backbone of steel. He was the impossible man. And so Oz's book is a clarion call for Christians in our modern techno-secular, crude, and violent world to become, in our time, impossible people. It's the very same thing. The Apostle Paul was calling the first century Corinthian Christians to be because that's what Christ had made them. He died for them out of great love for them. He had been resurrected for them. And now he was supernaturally filling them with his presence, his power, with his grace, and with his holiness. Oz wrote, such is the character and record of the gospel of Jesus that we may trust it absolutely. However dark the times and however bleak the challenge, doom, gloom, alarmism, and fear are never the way for the people of God. The gospel carries its own inherent transforming power, but we need to trust it, obey it, and live it against all the odds and at any cost. Some of you 
who are here might be put off by Oz's reference to Peter Damien and what he thought about homosexual relationships. We're going to take that up next week. But I will tell you this, that what I said before about the great paradox, that the more you understand how different you are from a non-Christian, the more humble you become, the more you discover the similarities with anybody, and the more winsome you become. Friends, the church has a great deal to confess when it comes to how we have treated people who live drawn to those of their same sex. We have much to confess. And I know it perhaps more than a lot of you because of my work with First Light. But we'll see how Anybody with any issue of any kind was captured by the gospel as it went out and as it was lived out in the church. All these different people, some of them, if they had gone into respectable society, would never have been welcomed. But the church in the first century was a motley crew. And it still is. I call you all a motley crew, and I'm as motley as anybody. But that's because this is what we are to be. The gospel carries its own inherent transforming power, but we need to trust it, obey it, and live it against all the odds and at any cost. Let's pray together, shall we? Oh, Lord, indeed, the kingdom of God is a radical thing. We should not claim to be citizens of it unless we are willing to submit to you, the king of all things. Oh, Lord, you know how thankful that I am for the way that you have manifested your presence and your power among us. And we do it poorly, but still there is evidence here of it. And, O Lord, we have so many questions about why you do this and don't act here and do there. And yet, O Lord, here's the Apostle Paul writing to a church that seems to have been almost a total mess. And he's full of confidence and hopefulness. Not so much in them, but in you, Lord Jesus. O Lord, as we go into our week... By the presence and power of your Holy Spirit, may this passage have feet that it might run after us. O Lord, give it hands that it might lay hold of us to challenge us, to confront us, but also to encourage us and lift us up because you promise that what you have begun in your people, you will not leave and forsake until it is finished in the day of the Lord Jesus. But, O oh Lord Jesus, we cry out again, even as we have sung, how long, how long will it be before you come and perfect all things? O oh Lord Jesus, come quickly with your arms wide open to receive us and fill us with your Spirit, even now, 
we pray it in your name through the high father and only because the spirit has shined his light into our weak and fragile and self-centered hearts 